Please open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. If I look stiff to you, it's because I am. Uh, at my age, I should not be playing basketball with my teenage and uh, 20-some-year-old son. But they talked me into it yesterday, and now I'm paying for it. So, um, exactly. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, let's pray, and we'll get into God's Word. <clears throat> Our gracious Father, we come before your throne, the throne of the universe. A throne that is a throne full of grace. We come through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We come knowing that we have a hearing in your presence because of Jesus. And that when you listen to our prayers, that you answer them in accord with your will. And so today we, we thank you. Thank you for the opportunity that we have. And it seems over the past probably month or so, we've been getting more and more prayer requests that have been going out through email. And, and we've had that, the privilege to be able to come before your presence on behalf of one another to invite you to work. We thank you for the good reports that we've gotten from some who, God, you've been working and, and doing a mighty thing in their lives. We pray for those who are facing realities such as cancer and, and from all human perspective, the prospect of, of death soon. We thank you that you are in charge of each life. And you have a plan for what you allow into every life. We pray for those who are grieving because of family members who have who've passed recently. We pray that your Holy Spirit will bring comfort and encouragement to them. Father, we are in desperate need today your word to speak into our lives, to bring that encouragement and that refreshment, that renewal, that challenge, maybe even conviction, so that we might live in such a way, Father, that our lives would be under the control of the Holy Spirit, and the evidence of that in the fruit of the Spirit would be known by those who, who are around us, whose lives are impacted by us. And regardless of our circumstances and situations, that those things that characterize Jesus would be evident in our life. And we would be a blessing in the midst of difficulty. And so we ask you to continue to teach and guide us through your word, by your Holy Spirit this day. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it was a Sunday in February. And the Sunday school teacher was teaching her, her students uh, about Valentine's Day. 
and uh, all the roots of Valentine's Day and why Valentine's Day exists and that we should see it as a time to encourage those around us and, and those that we, we care about. And, and at the end of the lesson, she handed each stu student a Valentine's card to fill out. She said, give them to your parents or someone that you like. You get it? Hopefully they like their parents, right? How many of us know there's a difference between loving someone and liking somebody, right? There is. Liking somebody is oftentimes dependent upon who they are, how they respond to us, how they act, and, and whether or not we enjoy being with them. Loving somebody, biblically speaking, does not involve those things. Though it's nice if we do like them too. Nowhere in the Bible, to my knowledge, are we commanded to like one another. But we are commanded multiple places in the Scripture to love one another. Jesus told his disciples, he said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you. So, love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. By this characteristic, they will know that you are a follower of Jesus. In Galatians 5, the Apostle Paul tells us that the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, one word. Right? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the fulfillment of God's commands. If we would just get this. And here now we come to Galatians 6. After in chapter 5, Paul has been, been con contrasting the deeds of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. And he says this is what characterizes a person who lives based upon the flesh. These kinds of things. And he gives a list, a representative list. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousies, outbursts of anger, all these kinds of things, factions, divisions among people, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and then su things such as these, he said. And then he contrasts it, and he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on. Love is the first characteristic in the fruit of the Spirit. The things which are evidenced in a life that is yielded to the Holy Spirit, love. We cannot love one another the way God tells us to in our own strength. We're incapable of doing that in our flesh. We might be able to demonstrate certain aspects of love to people we like. But what about people we don't like? What about people that drive us crazy? What about people that get under our, our nerves or get our nerves, get under our skin and just really annoy us? They're out there. And you probably can think of their names right now. We're called to love them even 
when we don't like them. We can only do this through the, through the life of the Holy Spirit working in us. And that life is at work in us, producing fruit when we yield to the Holy Spirit. When we give control of our lives into His hands. Sometimes we think of this living by the Spirit as kind of some kind of a mysterious thing. Well, here in chapter 6, in the first part of these first five verses, Paul gives us some really practical things to do that demonstrate love for one another. Follow along with me as I read Galatians 6, 1 through 5. Brethren, that's, that's, that's us. If, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting or rejoicing in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one shall bear his own load. There are a couple of injunctions here, if you will, imperatives that are critical for us to understand what it looks like to, to truly love one another. The first is that we should restore the wayward soul. He says, if anyone is caught in any trespass, restore such a one. What does he mean when he says, if a man is caught in any trespass? This could refer to one who is caught by someone else doing what they should not be doing. They've been caught, red-handed. Or it could refer to someone who is caught up in a, a problem, a struggle, a sin in their life that they can't seem to get over, they can't seem to, to overcome, and it just seems to bring them down over and over again. Oftentimes we think in terms of addictive kinds of behaviors. In either case, the person's caught by sin or in sin. They need to be restored. Certainly restored in relationship with God. Because if this is something they've been doing on a consistent basis, they've been out of fellowship with God. Now, it's important to understand that you and I cannot restore anyone who does not want to be restored. And so if it's a person who is caught by someone else doing something they shouldn't do, and their response is, well, leave me alone. I have the right to do whatever I want to do. Who are you to judge me? And if they take that kind of attitude, there's not a whole lot we can do. But if they are, if they are caught and they, are, they have remorse and they, they know what they've done and what we have been doing is, is wrong and they, they need help, we can help restore them. And or, if, or if they just come to us and say, I've really been struggling here. And I'm tired of it. And I need help. So there needs to be a willingness on their part to acknowledge what they've done. To, in other words, to confess their sin. 
and to seek to walk in repentance. What does it mean to restore? So this is a pretty dynamic word and has, has multiple applications, if you will. It literally means to put a thing in its appropriate position, in, a, in its right place. It means to establish, set up, equip, arrange. It was used in many ways in the first century, one of which was to supply a ship with its needed cargo and its, its fuel and manpower to everything the ship needed to go from where it was to where it was supposed to go, to equip it with everything that is necessary. It was also used in, in Mark chapter 1, uh, verse 19, when we see the disciples of Jesus before they were called to follow him. They were fishermen, and they had just been out all night fishing, and they were now on the shore, and they were mending their nets. Because after a whole night of fishing, those nets got ripped. Maybe by the large catch of fish, maybe by the, the stumps and the, 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 the uh, sticks and everything in the water that caught it and ripped it. Whatever it is, they, they need to mend the, the rips and tears in the, in the net. That's the same word. It was also used to talk about setting a broken arm or leg back in its place. The wayward soul is broken. And it's until they come, or that person comes to a place where they understand their brokenness before God and is willing to confess that brokenness to God. There's no, there's no restoration. But when you come and say, I'm broken, when you have a physical break in your arm and you go to a doctor and say, I'm, I'm broken, I need you to fix this. If you don't know you're broken, you'll never go for someone to help you. And so there is this restoring, this putting it back in position where it needs to be. How do we do that with a person that's out of fellowship with God? It has to be, first of all, you've got to get right with God. You've got to acknowledge that sin. And that's true for a believer that's been walking in the flesh or an unbeliever who doesn't even have a relationship with God. They've got to acknowledge their brokenness. And it's important, especially when working with another person, uh, to acknowledge that we all are broken. We don't come as one who is, who is all fixed and has no problems and say, well, I'll help you. No, we all are broken people and we need to all go to the same place to be restored. And that is through Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for us at the cross. And the life that he is living in us and wants to live through us. We can do this. But in verse 1, there are three qualifications for a person who is going to restore. First of all, we need to be spiritual. He says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. What does that mean to be spiritual? Does that mean that, that we've got to talk differently than other people? We've got to use spiritual words and language? No, it simply means you need to walk by the Spirit. He needs to be filled with the Spirit of God that He needs to be in control and at work in our lives. I think MacArthur is helpful when he, in his commentary, says spiritual believers are those walking in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, and manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, who by virtue of their spiritual strength are responsible for those who are fleshly, 
And here's really what's helpful. He says, it should be noted that whereas maturity is relative, depending on one's progression and growth, spirituality is an absolute reality that is unrelated to growth. At any point in the life of a Christian, from the moment of his or her salvation to glorification, is either spiritual, walking in the spirit of flesh, or walking in the deeds of the flesh. Maturity is the cumulative effort of times of spirituality, but any believer at any point in his uh, growth toward Christ-likeness can be a spiritual believer who helps a sinful believer who has fallen in the flesh. You don't have to be have walked with God 40 years and feel like you, you're a, a spiritual giant or whatever you might think that's supposed to look like before you can help and restore somebody. You just have to be walking with the Spirit of God. Because it's the life of the Spirit flowing through us that is going to be at work to help another person. Spiritual maturity is something that happens over time as we walk by the Spirit consistently. God develops maturity in our life. Romans 5.1, Paul says, Now we who are strong, which would be another way of saying we are, who those who are spiritual, ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Those who are spiritual. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, which is a, a, a text to the spiritually mature or spiritual people. He says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. We are called to this, to come alongside of people who are wayward and help build them up. So we need to be spiritual. Secondly, we need to be gentle. He says, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. Same word that's used in chapter 5, in the fruit of the spirit which means strength under control, the right use of power. It's important that we are not just uh, weak, passive people. We have strength that's under the control of the Holy Spirit. Because when we come into somebody's life, particularly if they're struggling and if they continue to give in to sin, they need somebody with strength to come to hold them accountable. We want to help them, not enable them to continue in it. We don't just come alongside and say, well, you know, God forgives. And, uh, you know, when you mess up again, God forgives. When you mess up again, God forgives. We need, you need, need somebody who's going to say, you need to stop this, and I'm going to be here for you. Call me when you're struggling. I'm going to pray with you. I'm going to pray for you. And, and, and I'm going to ask you, how are you doing here? Let me tell you, when somebody keeps asking you, uh, did you give in again, it's embarrassing to have to say over and over again. And so there's a, an accountability that comes here, and it helps. But we have to have the strength to be able to, to ask the question and to stand with them and to hold them accountable. But we do so not with judgment, but with gentleness. Why? Because we know we're all broken. We all know what that is like to be caught, to be struggling. So we need to be spiritual, we need to be gentle, thirdly, we need to be careful. Each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. 
a carefulness, a caution. It means to take heed. Again, the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, 12 and 13, he says, Therefore let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Take heed. Be careful lest you fall. And then he says, No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. Be careful so that you're not dragged into it as well or dragged into temptation. It's difficult to have to go into a place where somebody is caught in sin and rescue them out of it. There was a time when, uh, I believe it was when my sister was in a different place. Her husband's a pastor. And uh, they had a ministry in their church to go into. The ladies would go into strip clubs and minister to the strippers. Tell them about Christ's love and that they can be forgiven and they, they can be rescued from this. A lifestyle like that. When you do that kind of thing, you've got to be careful. You've got to be prayed up. You've got to be walking in the Spirit. And you've got to come with gentleness, not judgment. If you're going to rescue people who are caught in sinful behaviors and lifestyles. We need to be careful that we're not dragged into it. Wouldn't it be nice if we had a biblical example of something like this? Turn with me to John chapter 8. See how Jesus deals with a person caught in sin. John chapter 8. Jesus is teaching in the temple. Crowds have come and he's teaching. John 8 verse 3. It says, and the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the midst, they said to, her, to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? And they were saying this, testing him, in order that they might have uh, grounds to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. We have no idea what he was writing. We can speculate. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw the stone. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone, and the woman, where she was, in the midst. And straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Does no, no one accuse you? No one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And he said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From now on, 
sin no more. The Pharisees, the scribes, they wanted to trap Jesus because they knew what the law said, but it wasn't, it wasn't enacted much anymore in that time. But the letter of the law was. And so they wanted to trap Jesus because no matter what he did, whether he said, well, yes, stoner, uh, they would say, oh, you have no compassion. Or if he would have said no, then they would say, you're not keeping the law. They, they were trying to, to, to trap him. And, and what is Jesus then fall into the traps of the Pharisees and scribes? Jesus does not compromise God's standard. He doesn't say, no, she shouldn't be stoned. He says to them, let the one of you who is worthy to stand as her ultimate judge, you be the one to cross the first stone. Many have speculated that when Jesus was writing in the ground, he was writing the Ten Commandments or writing the sins of the people standing there so they could see, hey, you know what? I'm guilty too. We don't know. We don't know if they set her up. The obvious question is, where's the other partner in this? Right? You don't commit adultery by yourself. There's somebody else involved. Where is he? It's very probable because they hated Jesus, they were setting her up. She probably was a woman who had this kind of a history. They knew that she would be easily brought into this. So they set her up with a man watching. And as soon as they engaged her, they came and caught her in the act. Drag her away and not the man. Because they didn't care about her. All they wanted to do was trap Jesus. Jesus cared about this woman. And so the, without compromising God's standard, Jesus simply says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And all the accusers left. The only person left there was the only person who could pick up a stone and stone her. The only one without sin. And he didn't do it. Why? Because Jesus knew what he was going to do to take care of that. He knew that in a short period of time, he was going to take the stone for her on the cross at Calvary. He was going to satisfy God's justice against sin when he hung on the cross. On her behalf and on your and my behalf. So there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, Jesus didn't bring condemnation. But Jesus didn't say to her, well, you know what, just, just go, and it's okay, you know, I've covered it. No, he says, you go and sin no more. You've been caught. Now, go live differently. And Jesus calls every one of us that we're in relationship with people who are caught to walk beside them in that go and sin no more. To help them in that process. If you're like me, the struggle is always, well, how do I maintain a balance between not, not minimizing their sin and yet not you know, being judgmental? The only way we can do this is if we walk by the Spirit, right? We're spiritual, and we're gentle, and we're careful. 
And we let the Holy Spirit be at work to guide our steps in this. And we enact biblical principles and encourage them. We keep reminding them of where the condemnation lies. It's on Jesus on their behalf. It's not dismissing what they've done. It's helping them understand the, the level to which that punishment is enacted out and that Jesus Christ died for that sin. He took the wrath of God for that sin. It's not minimizing it. It's helping them see the consequences of that sin. And see, when we, when we finally grasp the fact that our, our sin was not set aside, it was punished, and Jesus, who didn't deserve it, took it for us, that begins to build a gratitude in our heart, a want to within us, to honor the one who gave his life for us. I don't want to keep doing the things that brought him pain. I want to change. And God, I need your help to do that. It's a very different motivation when we understand the gospel. And so we need to walk with Jesus every day so that we are prepared to be used by God in the opportunities that he gives us. It's messy. We like to just stay back and say, well, you know, well, that's, that's for a professional. Let a professional counselor work with them. Let, let the pastor do this. Let people who've been trained. And the qualifications here are not that you're trained or you have a degree. The qualifications are you're spiritual, you're gentle, and you're careful. And everyone in this room and watching online, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you can be qualified to, to restore a wayward soul. But you've got to walk with Jesus. And you got to be willing to be useful. Secondly then, verses 2 through 5, he talks about the fact that we should refresh the weary soul. After a person's been caught and they, they want help, and they're on this journey of, of restoration, right? They, their soul is weary from the battle, weary from the struggle. And maybe not just this person, but just someone who is weary because of a battle they're, they're engaged in because of somebody else's sin or difficulty. A child, a, um, a loved one of some kind that's, that's, that's walking in ways that are not honoring to Christ, and it, it's burdensome for those who are affected by that. They're weary. How do we refresh the weary soul? He says, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Right? We talked about that. What is the fulfillment of the law of Christ? Love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, to bear one another's burdens. A burden is a heavy extra load, more than one person can carry. The extra difficulties that we face in life. Again, we quote MacArthur. He said the second responsibility of a spiritual believer who seeks to restore a fallen brother is to help hold him up once he is back on his feet. It's not enough to simply to help him turn from sin and then leave him alone. It is immediate, 
Uh, it is immediately after a spiritual victory that Satan often makes his servants the severest attacks on God's children. You ever find that? You, you experience something, uh, something wonderful. You, you're involved in helping somebody, or you share the gospel with somebody, and they respond, and, and, and something really great happening, and then you, you find this attack coming. It's like, what is up with that, man? I was just on this spiritual high, if you want to use that terminology, and now I'm just, that's, the enemy goes after us in those times. Because it's often in those times we let our guard down. We begin to think, man, I did that. I'm somebody. And then he attacks. And when we, when we come out from under the, the heavy weight of, of sin in our life and, or of, of struggle, and we begin to see the light at the end of the tunnel, the enemy wants to beat us down again and wants to tell us there's no hope for you. You can't ever get out of this. And he keeps attacking. So we need to walk beside those who are, who are really struggling he goes on to say this, Christians are continually to bear one another's burdens. Why? Because that word uh, bear is, a, is a, a present imperative, a present tense, ongoing. He says bear has the thought of carrying, carrying with endurance. Burdens are from the word which refers to heavy loads which are difficult to lift and carry. Used metaphorically, as here, it represents any difficulty or problem a person has troubling coping, trouble coping with. In this context, the reference probably suggests burdens that tempt a sinner, sinning believer to fall back into trespasses from which he has just been delivered. A persistent, oppressing temptation is one of the heaviest burdens a Christian can have. To be freed from a sin is not always to be freed from its temptation. A spiritual believer who truly loves his brother uh, and sincerely wants to restore him to a walk by the Spirit will continue to spend time with him and make himself available for counsel and encouragement. And then he says this, prayer is the most powerful weapon believers have in conquering sin and opposing Satan. And nothing helps a brother carry his burdens as much as prayer for him and with him. You pray. There's power at the throne of grace. And so we commit to praying for and we pray with a brother and our sister in Christ who is weary and beaten down. We bring them before the throne of God. We ask for mercy and grace on their behalf. For the longest time as a pastor, I thought that I had to be the one to bring those, those right words. I had to be the one to have the answer to the problem. I had to, I had to felt the burden of having to, to know what to do and how to help. It's overwhelming. To feel that it's on you. I finally came to the place where God helped me see, you don't, you don't trust me. Right? You're not trusting the one who is really able. You think that you're better? You think that you're able? You think that you've you got all this? And you can't even figure out your own life, let alone helping somebody else. I finally realized, this is God's work. I'm just a tool in his hand. And so what I need to do is I need to keep bringing them to the one who really can help. I need to keep pointing them to him. 
That's how we carry one another's burdens. Secondly, we need to practice self-examination. Verses 3 and 4. If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing. <laughs> Man, I was there. I, I thought I was the one. Right? I got the quote-unquote training, Bible college and seminary. Man, I, I should know how to do this. When inside I'm thinking I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> so many things I didn't get trained for there. And I'm finding that's really going on. He who thinks he's something when he's nothing deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work and then he will have reason for boasting or rejoicing. It's not the same word that we sometimes think of a boasting. In regard to himself alone, not in regard to another. It's about not comparing ourselves. Verse 3 is talking about not being high-minded, not thinking more of yourself than you ought to think. When we're high-minded, it breeds intolerance of error in other people. And usually the way it works is when somebody else is struggling with something that I don't struggle with. You know, you get puffed up in your head and you think, well, you know, I, I got a handle on this Christian life thing. I don't do those things. I don't struggle with that. And then we're operating in the flesh rather than the spirit. It's also self-deception. The word deceives here literally means to lead one's mind astray. Deceived. I think I'm better than I am. I think I'm more important than I am. I think I'm something when I'm nothing. But he says, let one, each one examine his own work. And that word examine is also an imperative, a present imperative, continually examining ourselves. Being sober-minded rather than high-minded, if you will. To examine means to try, to prove. It has the idea of proving a thing, whether it's worthy or not. We look at our own life. And he says, then you'll have reason for rejoicing in regard to himself, not in regard to others. You're not comparing yourself with other people. You're simply looking at your own life, seeing where you are. Are you trusting in the Holy Spirit, or are you walking in the flesh? Are you spiritual? Are you gentle? Are you careful? Are you walking in this? Or are you simply looking at others and saying, well, I'm not nearly as bad as that person, therefore I must be okay. Well, that works both ways because you might find somebody who's better than you are. And then you're like, man, I, I'm really I'm horrible. We have to have a proper estimation of ourselves. Think clearly about this. Paul says in Romans 12, through the grace given to me, verse 3, I say to every man among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought, be high-minded, but he says, but to think so as to have sound judgment, sober-minded, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Have a proper estimation of who you are in your walk with Christ. How do, we, how do we go about that when we're trying to help somebody else? Again, Jesus gives us some really helpful words in this. Matthew 7, 3 through 5. He says, 
Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that's in your own. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, behold, there's a log in your own? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus isn't saying your sin is far worse than someone else's. He's saying from your perspective, your sin is far worse than someone else's. What you got going on in your life, you need to deal with so that you are now positioned, ready, and under the direction of the Holy Spirit to move into someone else's life and begin to help them. We don't do it in our flesh. We don't do it with some, some high-minded perspective. We're better than them. We've got it all under control. We don't. It's the Holy Spirit. That's why we need to be self-examining ourselves and not comparing ourselves with each other because comparison destroys contentment in our own life. Dr. Thomas Constable writes this about this comparing. He says, there are two errors that might keep a believer from fulfilling this role of bearing one another's burdens. The first is conceit, right? high-minded. That is thinking himself to be more important than he is. The second is to be always comparing himself and his work with others. There is a great difference, he says, between introspection and self-examination. The former can easily devolve into a kind of narcissistic spiritual navel-gazing that has more in common with types of Eastern mysticism than with classic Christianity. True self-examination is not merely taking one's spiritual pulse beat on a regular basis, but rather submitting one's thoughts, attitudes, and actions to the will of God and the mind of Christ revealed in Holy Scripture. It's bringing ourselves back to reality and saying it is about Christ and what does God's Word say and getting a proper estimation from the truth of God's Word. We need to carry one another's burdens. We need to practice self-examination. Thirdly, we need to carry our own load. And so why isn't that contradicting verse 2? Bear one another's burdens and carry your own. Well, the word burdens and load are two different words. Word in verse 2, as I said, is talking about extraordinary burdens, extra heavy loads that come on a person's life once in a while based upon, in this context, based upon sin, maybe your own or someone else's in, in, is connected with you, and you're carrying a heavy load. It's not normal. The word that's used in verse 5 is that normal load that everyone has. It's, it was used of the standard issue backpack that every soldier was to carry. Everyone gets their own load and carries it. But then when there's something that happens, a soldier goes down, and now we've got to carry that soldier. What do you do? You take the pack off that soldier, give it to one person, and someone else picks that person up, or a couple of them pick them up and carry them. We carry one another's extra load. But we carry our own normal load. We don't expect other people to carry what's normal for everyone. Again, that's having a proper balance and understanding of who am I and what is God calling me to and what is someone else going through that's more than they can bear and I can be of assistance for this time. Because here's the thing. I might be the one helping you tomorrow, but then 
A week from now, you might be the one helping me because I got the extra burden. And that's the body of Christ working as it ought to work. Here's the thing. The body will only work the way it's supposed to work when it's filled with spiritual, gentle, and careful believers who walk with Jesus. When it's filled with fleshly people, first of all, when someone shares a burden that they need someone to help them carry with, then we're going to stand in judgment of them. We're going to gossip behind their back and tell other people what so-and-so has done or what so-and-so has what's going on in their life and all this. And, and then when that happens, guess what? Someone who's carrying an extra load, the last place they're going to bring it is to the church, to people who are self-righteous, people who are going to judge them, and we're going to gossip behind their back. If we want to put on a picture that we got it all together, and put on a, a mask that says, I, I, I have no problems, I got no, no troubles, life is great, God is good to me, and, and everything's fine all the time, and I got no, no need for help. That's fine, you want to live that way, live life that way. But God calls us to be real, <laughs> to be authentic, to know we're all broken, and there are times in which we need someone to help us carry the burden. What would it be like if as an entire congregation we were known for being people who cared so much that we wept before the throne of God every day on behalf of each other because of the burdens that people are carrying. That we were known for people who didn't talk about people to other people, but we talked to God on their behalf. That when people brought something to us, we, we came alongside of them with compassion and gentleness and cared for them. And that we were people who were honest enough to say, I'm struggling. I need help. If we were a church, that the world looked at and said, I know them. They are followers of Jesus. And how do I know them? <laughs> I know them by their love for one another. You and I know the greatest criticism the world has of the church and why people don't go to church. Because the church is full of what? Hypocrites. Now listen. They're going to stand before God one day and give an account because they didn't. But we're going to also stand and give an account if that's true of us. Father, help us. Help us see as we look at our own life As we, we look inside and we, we, we don't just evaluate ourselves based on what we see around us and other people, but Lord, we simply say, God, examine me. See if there be 
any hurtful, wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If we came before you, Lord, with that kind of heart every day, and we said, Lord, today I die to myself, that Christ might live in me, that I might be useful for your purposes today. If when somebody came to us with a heavy burden, we put our arm around them, and we said, let me pray with you right now. What can I do to help you right now? How can I be of help to you as you walk this path? God, it would transform our lives, transform our church, and it would transform this community. But this is your work, Father. We ask that you would do it in your people. Father, thank you. You have called us to this work. You've put your spirit in us so we don't have to do it in our own strength. You long to do it through us if we would just get out of the way and let you work. Oh, Father, you know what you are saying to every one of us individually. May we not dismiss what you're telling us right now. But may we bring it before you and let you have it. May we walk in the grace that is ours through Jesus Christ and the power of His Spirit. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.